This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I recently found myself in a rabbit hole watching James Baldwin videos on YouTube. And what I discovered in listening to all of the, whether, we, whether he was talking to kids, students in England, or sitting down with Dick Cavett, or having a, a, a battle with Mar- Malcolm X, uh, was that this man had a very clear sense of himself, but also a very, very empowered sense of his blackness. To this day, I don't know too many people as confident in who he is as a person than James Baldwin, and his words are still relevant 50, 60 years later. As we approach his 95th birthday, I wanted to take one such video that I watched and break it into three parts. This video uh, was an interview James Baldwin did in 1960 with Nathan Cohen on a program called Encounter. It was a Canadian talk show that lasted maybe about eight months, but during that eight month period, this man, Nathan Cohen, got a chance to sit down and talk with James Baldwin about race and racism. And as I was watching the the video, which you'll be listening to, I'm gonna play a portion of it after I talk. As I'm watching this interview and Nathan Cohen try to grapple with and try to spar with James Baldwin, I realized that there were very few people of his time, black or white, who could mentally battle James Baldwin. And this guy was getting twisted up and confused, and James Baldwin, in his very patient, methodical way, was trying to explain something that it was clear that this white man had never considered. And it was fascinating watching him mull over the examples and try to reconcile with his own frailty as a person and in the moment you can almost see him also understand that intellectually he didn't have any anything uh that he could bring to the table as related to trying to stump James Baldwin in part one of this conversation that I'm going to have as we go through this video James Baldwin talks about black folks being driven to madness. And I think about it today, driven to madness under the yoke of inequality, under the yoke of being seen as other, as, as, as denigrated, as, as diminished in a society when that man or woman knows that he or she is not less than, but having to walk through life bowing and, and yesman and, and, and just placating placating a a group of people who don't deserve to be placated to because of the position that they have been placed in in society. In part one, James Baldwin talks about equality. At the end of this, he says, it is a question, it's not a question of giving the Negro equality. The question is, why doesn't he have it yet? And because I've been reading James Baldwin quotes, I know that he says that freedom can't be given. So what he's really saying is freedom, equality can't be given. He's asking a question, why haven't black folk, why haven't the Negro taken it? And I want you to sit and process today as we are in a particular time and having all these discussions around race and racism and what it all means. Uh, Understand that the noise, the noise is a a distraction and the noise is there to keep you off off your game and to keep you from your full entitled power you know you know it's it's keeping you from doing the work to take your freedom to take your equality because it is yours um in this interview he talks about um you know you can enter every door and you know in the north um in the north you don't know which door you go through 
which door will be slammed in your face. So you go with the kind of tension of like, is this place going to accept me? Is this, is this place not going to accept me? In the South of racism, he said, is bold. You know where you can't go in the South. And the lines are very clear. But both of those are problematic. And the interviewer says, well, this is all changing. You know, we're seeing these sit-ins and we're seeing the bus boycott. Black people are insisting that they have equality. And James Baldwin said, yes, but that's also setting off a panic in America with white people. And he said, this is also the first generation of black people, first generation of black people, and this was in 1960, that are not controlled by America's image of them. That it's not controlled by America's image of them. He goes on in, in parts two and three that I'm gonna talk about. The image of black America, the image of black people, our image is through the lens of somebody else that doesn't see us. He said, you know, if these black people are not who I thought they were, this is what white people are thinking, I'm seeing them differently now. If they're not who I thought they were, who are they? And he said, what do white people see when they look at us? And then James Baldwin goes on to say, whatever that white man is looking at, it wasn't me. It wasn't something he was afraid of, uh, to which he was attracted to or found repulsive, but it wasn't me. Whatever he's looking at, I'm a man, he says but that's not what he sees when he looks at me. And he said, it has to do with a peculiar and absolutely bankrupt morality that is prevalent in America. And then he goes on to talk about religion and how religion is at, at the crux of the existence of America and how the black image has been shaped. So I hope you enjoy this, this discussion that we're gonna be having around James Baldwin as we approach his 95th birthday. But my goodness, 1960, this interview could be today, and it's equally as relevant. Let me know what you think. Follow me on Twitter, at Karen Hunter, with the hashtag podcast. You can ask me any question. I pick a question, and I talk about it on Sunday. But I do want to have this discussion, and we're going to have it on the radio, too, on Sirius XM. So I hope you enjoy. Officially, in the South, there is inequality and no freedom for the Negro, and unofficially, but just as effectively, there is no freedom for the Negro in the North. The terms are different, but the reality is the same. A boy in Birmingham um, is in great trouble in Birmingham. He has, in a way, one advantage, though. It's very clear in Birmingham that he can't go anywhere. A boy born in New York can go almost anywhere. Almost. Almost. This can drive you mad. This can drive you mad. You can live almost anywhere if you fight to get in. You can enter almost any nightclub. You can enter almost any bar and nothing will happen. But this almost means that there is a bar, there is a hotel, there is a doorman, there is an elevator boy, there is somebody every day. There is that one place you cannot go, which means you enter every door on edge. Now, this is not true in the South. When a, when a Negro boy goes in the Woolworths in the South, sits down, he knows very well what he's up against. He knows they don't want him there, and, he's, and the only way that he can stay there is to say, in effect, what they have said, you know. We not only are entitled to service, but we want it. Yes, but there's more and more of this going on in the South. Negro boys are going into Woolworths, they're going on buses, not only Negro boys, Negro girls. And they're insisting on their right to sit anywhere in a bus or sit, and they're insisting on their right to sit down at the counter. They're refusing to sit in 
uh, colored waiting rooms only and bus depots and things like that, they are insisting on a change in this condition. They are indeed. But they, I'm sorry. Well, doesn't this suggest a change and, and uh, progress in the relations and in the status of the Negro in these areas? It may or may not, may not mean that, but what it does mean, this is why the South is so panic-stricken, and essentially the country is so panic-stricken about it, it means this. The generation of boys and girls who are sitting down in those lunch counters are the first generation of Negroes in the entire history of America who were not controlled by the Americans' image of them. This is why Montgomery is so demoralized, Little Rock is so paralyzed, New Orleans, people are going mad. If you have, I was in Montgomery after the bus boycott, after, the, after, it, after it had succeeded, which outlawed segregation on the buses. Now, Montgomery is really, after all, a rather small southern town. If you can find anywhere in the deep south Negroes, the south has been saying for generations, they know. They know the Negro. You would find them in that town. There was not a Negro in that town, really, essentially, who was not working with some white man. There was really no middle class. There were no outside agitators. These people walked. These people terrified. The, t the town is still terrified. Because they don't, not, ter you know, not even on the obvious level about violence, but if they're not who I thought they were, who are they? Well, who did the whites, South, Southern, and Northern, uh, Northern think the Negroes were? What is this image that you were talking This is about? precisely what it's so difficult to get down to, but let me, put it, let me try to put it this way. Um, what is he? I don't, know, I don't know what white people see know when they look at a Negro anymore. But I do know very well um, that I realized when I was very young that whatever, whatever he was looking at, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Um, it was something he was afraid of. It was something um, to which he was attracted or which he found repulsive. But it wasn't me. I was not a man. Now, this image, I don't know what this image is, but it has something to do. It has something to do, I'm convinced of this, with the Puritan God. It has something to do with a peculiar and, I believe, absolutely bankrupt morality under which we all are suffering. The one person who was outside this constriction, in fact, and historically, and in life, was this pagan, this black pagan. Who was brought over who was as brought a over, chattel. That's right. Who was brought over as a chattel uh, to, a, to, to, to God's country. Now, somewhere, I think in order to deal with it all, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning and try to imagine, I don't know how, I, I don't know if this can be done, but I think we've got to try, uh, what it must have been like then. Because then, after all, he really was a pagan. He had nothing to do, not only with the, you know, the Puritanical families of America, but with the European tradition out of which Americans came. He really was a stranger. He really, he really did frighten them. He didn't, they did not know what to do with him. And they still don't. And in a way, the, the sexual legends just sprung up around the figure of, of the Negro in, a, in America contain somehow the key, the truth, about our situation. It is still true. That the, that, the, that the question which ends the argument, stops the argument, is would you let your sister marry one? It is still the question to which, in effect, 
country has found no answer. Do you think that there is this pretense? The, the, the thing that impresses me while I try to understand the problem of the relationship of white and Negro in the United States, which seems to me a very crucial problem indeed, is the earnest desire of what I can only call Christian thinking uh, Americans to remedy this, this terrible, enduring wrong to find some way to make expiation, to find some way to give the Negro equality as a citizen of that country. Surely this is the real significance, for example, behind this whole struggle for integration. I quite agree with that. I quite agree with that. But in order for this to be achieved, there is one thing which has to be done which is not being done. And that is this. It is not, it is not a question of giving the Negro equality. That is not really the question. The question is why you haven't. Why you haven't? Yes. Why, why doesn't he have it yet? That was the first part of James Baldwin's interview with Nathan Cohen from 1960 from Encounter, the Canadian talk show. We're going to break down parts two and three in subsequent days. But let me know what you think. Follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter. Till next time.